Good morning and welcome to Trinity and to House Church. My name is Jonathan, get to serve as a pastor of our church. Welcome to you, especially if church is new to you, foreign to you, strange to you. Uh, we're glad that you can be a part of our community. Checking us out online through the podcast or whatever format you're finding us uh, is an easy way to do this from home. Church has never been more accessible, which at least is a high point of being isolated and alone. So if Christianity is something that you're exploring, we're so thankful you're here. We're finishing up a five-week series today that we have entitled Disruptive Grace. We're gonna be in Acts chapter eight in just a moment. But we've been looking at different stories of transformation throughout the Bible, primarily because we need to be reminded that what God is doing is he's changing lives. He's not putting people to sleep. Right? He's not lulling us into kind of a, a spiritual malaise. God is good, God is active, God is alive, God is changing people's lives. And there are stories in the Bible that are captured in the history of redemption so that we can lean into them, go, what did God do there? And then ask the question, could God do that in my life and our time? And the resounding answer is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, meaning that God wants to change us. And as we're going to see in Acts chapter 8, he wants to bring joy to our city through us. So I'm excited to be in this chapter with you as we wrap up this series entitled uh, Disruptive Grace. Let me read for us from Acts chapter 8. I'm going to begin with verse 4. And we're going to go through verse 25. A story of the transformation within the life of a man named Simon the Magician. All right, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized... He continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem 
preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word for us today. There are three things I'm going to take you through. Number one, we're going to look at this theme of diagnosis. When the Holy Spirit changes a life, where is he going? What's he doing? At what level is he changing a human being? So we're looking at an accurate diagnosis. Number two, we're going to look at the idea of positioning. Simon's way out front. He's a leading man in the city. He's influential. He's at the center of society. But when the gospel breaks into somebody's life, the gospel through the Holy Spirit repositions somebody properly. And then lastly, we're going to look at a disruptive practice that's described at the end of the chapter. So accurate diagnosis, proper positioning, and a disruptive practice. So under part one, this theme of diagnosis. For change to really take place, we have to really understand what's going on and what's driving the old behavior and this mal-character formation. So the first few verses of chapter 8, what we're doing and what we find is Luke, the writer, is setting the scene for what's happening as Christians were being scattered out and away from the city of Jerusalem. Now, at the end of Acts chapter 7, this is the stoning of Stephen, who happens to be the first Christian martyr. What we find is that there's a highly influential, highly gifted, very intelligent, very driven Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus, whose amazing story of transformation and disruptive grace comes a little bit later. But what we find is that Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as Paul the Apostle, was leading this violent persecution against the church and against followers of Jesus. And Christians within the city, they're fleeing. They're leaving. And some of them are fleeing for their lives. But their departure was not marked by fear or hiding. It was actually marked by joy and by preaching. Glance at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You see, in this Hellenistic Jew who had become a convert to Christianity, think about that, a Hellenistic Jew becomes a convert to Christianity. His name is Philip. We're introduced to him in Acts chapter 6. Philip probably doesn't find a warm reception, one, as a Hellenist, and now two, as a Christian in his home base of Jerusalem. So when persecution breaks out, as an isolated outsider, this individual decides to go north to the region of Samaria, which is actually the home of the ultimate outsiders, the Samaritans. If you know a little bit about biblical history, you know that the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. They have a long history of animosity and prejudice and violence that dates back to somewhere around 1000 BC when you see the original division of the one kingdom being divided between the northern and the southern. And then all of this animosity and tension, it builds to tell somewhere around the 4th century, where in the 4th century you find that the Samaritans decide to erect their own temple. Instead of believing that God had erected one temple in Jerusalem, they erect their own. So there's all of this animosity, there's religious tension, there's cultural tension, because in their own deportment and in their own exile, the Samaritan people had intermarried with the Assyrians and the Cuthites. So there's all of this religious, unique religious history. So the, really, there's, there's tension, there's prejudice, there's violence that has broken in. John 4.9 tells us that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And yet, the scattering, right, and this rising of persecution in Jerusalem brought to fulfillment Jesus' final words that were given to his disciples in Acts 1 verse 8, where he tells them that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, 
And then he adds, and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And it would have been very easy to skip over that geographic location. Jesus, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Judea. I'm going to go to the ends of the earth. I'm not going to Samaria. See, but persecution, empowered by the winds of the Holy Spirit, pulls Philip, this isolated Hellenistic Christian, to go north and to go into this nation of Samaria. See, and as he goes, he preaches. And as he preaches, the text tells us that people are transformed. Glance at verse 6. In verse 6, we read that as the Samaritans heard him preach, it says that the people paid attention. In other words, they're really listening. They're, they're leaning into this unique message of Jesus Christ. They saw and they experienced powerful ministry. They saw lives change. They saw paralyzed people walk again. They saw lame people be able to use their hands and their feet. They saw people who had oppressive demonic forces going on in their life and in their own heart. We saw those things transformed and pushed out. They saw a powerful ministry, so much so that the result was much joy in the city. And I love that. This isn't just individuals being changed. This isn't just families being changed. This is the fabric of a place, the fabric of a city experiencing much joy because the gospel is breaking into their city, breaking into their lives. Luke then introduces us to a leading citizen in town. We're going to look at him a little bit more in part two, a man by the name of Simon Magus or Simon the Magician, a man who has this powerful reputation, so powerful, in fact, that he is referenced as, quote, the power of God that is called great. Now, he had influenced the people's opinion of himself. He was probably a master manipulator to the point that they viewed him as a servant of God or some say even as God himself. And in the text, Simon, the magician, he becomes a follower of Jesus. And when Peter comes to town, when John comes to town to confirm what's going on amongst the Samaritans, because this had not taken place yet, the gospel had only been preached amongst the Jews and in Jerusalem, not outside of the city and not amongst non-Jewish people. And so they come down to confirm that the gospel is being faithfully preached. They lay their hands on people. And Simon is impressed by the imparting of the Spirit of God, as you see in this text. And he says, that's power. He says, I've displayed power for years in this city, but they have a unique ability, a unique gift, and a unique power to influence. Whatever's happening right there, I'd like to buy part of that. Look at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. When the Holy Spirit changes a life, his arrival is always marked by an accurate diagnosis of what's going on inside of you. Do not miss that. 
The Holy Spirit is going to change your life. If you're a Christian or if you're outside of Christianity, wondering could it be true, when the Holy Spirit begins to work, what he does is when he shows up, he provides an accurate diagnosis of what's going on inside of you. See, when Simon wants to buy, essentially buy the gift of God's grace, which is an impossibility, it's called grace. It's free. You don't earn it. You can't buy it. When he wants to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter says to him, Simon, your heart is not right before God. See, your heart is way off. And I want you to notice that this is a radical departure from modern thinking, from postmodern mindsets that invites you to look inside for what is most true. Secular thinking has made the heart, what you feel, your preferences, your emotions, and your opinions, all of those being good things, but not necessarily the determiner of what is actually true. See, the secularist says, look inside of you and uncover your true self. Go deep inside. We carry the solutions to our own problems and the world's problems inside of us. And what weighs us down are outmoded traditions and expectations and arbitrary rules and arbitrary religions. So if we can push those external things away from us and we can go deep inside of our true selves, inside of our own hearts, we'll find what is most true. See, but Christianity says, actually, we are the problem. We are the problem. Our hearts are not right before God. And we are made in the image of the true God, but there is this thing called sin that is a part of each and every single one of our narratives. Where yes, we're still created in the image of God, but there's a brokenness to who we are. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Why the persistence of racism in the year 2021, especially after all of the work and all of the accomplishments of men and women and leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday we celebrated this past week. Why are we stunningly aware of so many local and global systemic injustices? Why things like trafficking, gender inequality, drug wars, drug violence, rampant violence of all kinds, oppression of the weak? The answer is because our hearts are not right before God. See, Christianity says accurately that there are tremendous problems in the world. Don't miss, don't miss this, but it does not demonize a particular group of people or a nation right, or a culture and saying that we can isolate the problem. This is not what Christianity has ever said. Christianity refuses to segregate or isolate the problem because it universalizes the moral dilemma as something that each and every one of us carries within us. It's called a broken heart. More accurately, using biblical language, it's called sin. There's a brokenness to my life and your life that impacts everything that I touch. Our hearts are not right before God. And we do just about anything to avoid this being true. If you're a history buff, it doesn't take long for you to flip through some of the pages of your favorite his historians to be able to find out that with relish and fervor, tribe after tribe, people after people have done whatever they can to avoid that truth, that I am the issue, that I am the problem. 
that I carry the problem within my own character, like a disease. My heart is not right before God. Peter knows it. He says it directly to Simon the magician. He'd established himself as the center of everything. I like to establish myself as the king or the queen. And yet the tyranny of my rule is so destructive and not gracious. Yet listen as Rebecca Pippert writes this. She says, most of us have the same offhand effrontery to believe in our own innocence. And contemporary culture has raised the alibi industry to new heights of productivity. We operate, albeit nervously at times, out of an assumption of our own innate goodness. Yes, we may admit foibles here and there. Such admissions only underscore how conscientious we are. But on the whole, we think we are pretty good chaps. Only when we acknowledge that something is really wrong will we start to look for genuine solutions. You see, only when we admit that the problem is actually deeply embedded inside of us and the resulting healing and the saving is outside of us to be found only in Jesus and what he provides, is there a way to move forward? See, an accurate diagnosis of what was going on in Simon's life and Simon's heart, but also, I would say, in mine and in yours. Part two, this concept of a proper repositioning, a proper positioning. Look at verse nine. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and he amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. I mean, even from Luke's very brief description of Simon the magician, you can tell that he is a powerful, influential figure in the city. Luke tells us that people, quote, paid attention to him in the same way that they paid attention to Philip. Very similar language. He's essentially a social media influencer. People are paying attention to what he does and to what he says. It's likely that Simon was immersed in the occult. This is not David Blaine. This is not sleight of hand. This is most likely kind of a, a dark demonic magic, dabbling in the occult. And he was smart, and he was manipulative, and he was obviously glory hungry because he's trying to convince people over and over again that he is something special and that he's great. And through skill and deception and through probably sheer force of personality, He's able to convince people that he was something very unique, set apart, something special, something related to this God, right? The power of this God called great. In his own eyes, and then later, even in the eyes of the people of Samaria, Simon was like a God. He was at the center of everything. And see, Luke provides us with the story of Simon as this striking illustration of the human tendency to elevate itself above other people, positioning ourselves as special, the focal point of our own little tiny universes on center stage like a God. See, but when Philip preached the message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God crucified and resurrected, it was enough to reposition Simon removing him from the center of town and the center of attention and the center of society to his proper place as a man and not a God. See, when the Holy Spirit moves upon a life, 
Not only does he show you that your heart is not right before God, but secondly, when the Holy Spirit shows you the specifics that you prefer to be in charge, to maintain, to maintain control, to wield all of the power, and to let others know that you are something great. And the gospel confronts the belief that we are the center of everything. This is very difficult, actually, for modern people to hear. And this is why I think that Christianity is so often rejected. Because everything around us is saying, no, no, you are the center. You make the choice. You go deep inside. You find you. You are the arbiter of truth. And Christianity comes in and says, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. You're not at the center of everything. God is. Wilhelm Reich, who came after Sigmund Freud, he writes, what is the dynamic of human misery on this planet? It all stems from man trying to be other than he is. Karl Marx said, I am nothing, and I should be everything. Bertrand Russell, he said, of the infinite desires of man, the chief are the desires for power and glory. Rebecca Pippert, she writes, the really amazing thing is how long it takes us to realize that we are not God that over the deepest things in life, we are not in the driver's seat of this universe. Can I press in and say that 2020, if nothing else, has shown us that we are not in control, that the power is not ours, that the things that matter the most in life are so far out of our fingers' grasp? Things have been taken from us so quickly. And if 2020 does not wake us up to the reality that we are not in charge, that we are not in control, then I'm not sure what sort of year will. But I will admit that even then, even in years like the one we have just completed, I still want to hold on to the illusion that I'm at the center only when things are going well. But if things start to go against the grain, then I'm easy to kind of look for other ways out and other places to put the blame. That's the reality of who I am. Ezekiel 28.2 on top of all of that says, you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. I want to be at the center of everything. But when the gospel is preached, what's being announced is the reality that in Jesus Christ, a new king has arrived and his kingdom takes priority over everyone else, including my own. See, and logically, this makes sense to us, at least on paper. If God is real, then God has to come first. But we've been fed this false narrative that encourages us to maintain control, to manage your time and your money and your image and your health and your status and your family the way that makes you happy. See, you are positioned at the center of the modern narrative. This way, it places your dreams and your desires and your plans at the very center. Because as one writer put it, who needs a God when you virtually are one? The modern technology and modern society has given us so many conveniences that I actually don't have a big need anymore. Maybe I'm not at the top of society, but I'm definitely not at the bottom. Most of my needs can be met. Why would I need a God if I virtually almost literally, virtually, in the world that we live in now, if I virtually am one. See, Simon is an example of each one of us. Our hearts are not right. And it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to forgive and to fix and to heal that level of brokenness. 
And friends, can I say it like this? Jesus is committed to being your king, of overthrowing the tyrant on the throne of your life, namely you and namely me. See, the gospel says that our God will use anything, anything at all, any disruption that he can to woo and to win your heart back again. And the most significant disruption, of course, being the cross. I mean, think about what the cross says to you. Our God is willing to be disrupted, to leave heaven, to become a man, to live a perfect life. He should be receiving accolades and, and awards and medals, but he receives a cross for me because of my heart not being right, because of my choices to put myself consistently at the center. He goes, I'll take it for you. What's more disruptive than the cross? And what shows you more than the cross and the resurrection? That Jesus is supposed to be our king and we're supposed to follow where he leads. See, he's supposed to be first and we're supposed to follow. Let me take you to this last part, diagnosis, positioning, and then thirdly, this disruptive practice. This is such a unique, uh, fascinating story because we're not exactly sure how it ends. We see Simon hear the gospel. He pays attention to it. It seems like he believes in what Philip preaches. And yet when we get to the end of the story, we see that his heart needs consistent, ongoing work. When Simon is confronted by Peter after his attempt to buy this spiritual power, the, the imparting of the Holy Spirit to others, in verse 22, Simon is told to repent and to pray. See, and repentance is this radically disruptive practice. It's this regular rhythm of acknowledging our sin, turning away from it, and turning towards Jesus. It's the ultimate re-anchoring upon the gospel. See, and repentance can disrupt everything. Let me share a brief story with you. When we were living in Boston, <clears throat> there was a friend of mine who shared a story. Uh, they were working at a law office, and they were working with another firm. And mistakes had been made back and forth between her firm and their firm. And so uh, as she was realizing as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that she wanted to admit her mistake. And so she told her partner, she said, you know what? This was our fault, potentially even my specific fault. I'd love to go to this other firm and tell them, I'm sorry. That was my mistake. Can I fix it? And there was this big reaction against her willingness to step into that space of fault to say that I have the issue. You're not at fault we are sorry, or at least I am sorry. And all of her partners said, no, 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 don't do that. That displays weakness. We need to continue to display strength. But she had this conviction in her life that she needed to go open the door of forgiveness and say, that was my bad. That was my fault. I own it. And so against the better judgment of her partners, she leaned into this other firm and called them, told them, or maybe even in person said to them, whatever happened, that was on me and I'm sorry. And all of the fear of her partners went rushing out the door because the moment she said that, she got this beautiful and unexpected response that said to her, we forgive you, but we've also made mistakes as well. And they started to apologize for things that they had done. And so you see these kind of two corporate offices going back and forth between saying, 
I'm sorry, no, no, I'm sorry. And this relationship, their relationship really started to heal and bloom and blossom because of this theme of forgiveness and repentance, this disruptive practice. What would it look like if as followers of Jesus, we stepped into our families, into our marriages, with our kids, towards our teachers, towards your roommates, towards our public leaders? What would it look like if we were the ones who came in and said, yes, there are things that are imperfect in our family, maybe in our marriage, in my parenting, but I want to own something. I want to recognize that I have a heart issue, that I love to be at the center of things, and I'm sorry. What would it look like? What would it disrupt in your life if you had the audacity and the courage because the gospel gives you that sort of confidence to say, I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. See, repentance is this incredibly disruptive practice that can weave its way not only into your heart, but into our society. What would it look like for a public figure to stand in front of us, in front of the American people and say, I'm not perfect. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? We're longing for that sort of disruption. We're not designed to be perfect. We're not designed to have it all together. We're designed to lean into grace. And grace disrupts everything. And it's unique that we don't know exactly how Simon's story unfolds, do we? Luke kind of seems to leave it open-ended. And I think he leaves it open-ended because he says, while Simon might not have been fully restored, maybe Simon decided not to continue to follow Jesus. We're not really told. Really, I think his question is, what about you? We don't know about Simon's story, but what about your story? Do you see your own life? Do you see your own heart? Do you see your need for Jesus? Do you see the disruptive power of the cross? Do you see the way in which Jesus has come to disrupt everything? Not to manipulate or harm, but to heal and restore. Can you see that? That's the beauty of our God and that's the beauty of our faith. I want to encourage you in the beginning of this year, let him disrupt you, something you'll never regret. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit that animates it. We thank you for the promises of the gospel that are new today. They were spoken thousands of years ago to Simon. Peter said to him, repent. He didn't say to him, earn your salvation. He didn't say, you're so messed up, you have no part in this thing called Christianity. He said, repent and pray. And your God will hear you because Jesus is a Savior. The same grace that saves is the same grace that we are welcomed into, the disruptive practice of repentance day after day after day. Not once in a while, but all the time, where we experience the conviction of sin, but the renewing presence of the Spirit of God who heals, redeems, and forgives. I pray you disrupt me. I pray you disrupt us. And through it, bring great joy to our city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.